0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Seen and Heard podcast. I'm Aaron Meikle, host for the podcast, and we're joined again by Tom Fraser. I actually lined Tom up to do um, this podcast that we're about to record, and then issues overtook us a wee bit with um, some challenges around the country from the climate, be it too dry in the north or too wet in the south, Um, but on top of that obviously there's a bit of an issue around the pandemic and processing capacity being uh, limited. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast published um, from last week where we spoke with Tom about managing short-term, acute feed demand and supply imbalances when better a drought, a flood, or on top of that, we've got a limitation in processing capacity. But what I really wanted to talk to Tom about, and I think a few people have been keen to hear this, because Tom's been around with us for a wee while. He's done, as we spoke about on the last podcast, well into the three figures of field days and workshops and so on for Beef and Lamb New Zealand and its predecessors alone let, alone, let alone all the other activities he's done around the place, particularly working with sheep and beef farmers. So we wanted to pick his brain a wee bit. Um, lots of farmers have heard Tom talk and will remember it well. Wanted to, wanted to have a bit of a reminder. There may be some farmers out here and there who haven't come across Tom, but as I say, if you listen to the, once you've listened to this podcast, you'll wonder why you haven't, because he's well known Uh, for talking about farm system stuff, and on the first podcast we talked about um, what farm systems is and how Tom came to be in that. So look, Tom, welcome back, thanks for joining us again, we're actually, um, yeah, we're we're picking your brain as we go here, but now we want to talk more about long-term management and strategic, and the title you sort of gave me, or the suggestion you gave to me, was Sticking to the Basics. So again, like the last podcast, we'll drill into things and discuss them a wee bit more, you the floor at the start when you say stick to the basics what are the basics for sheep and beef farmers in New Zealand?
1: Uh, Thanks Aaron Uh, yes so what we have in in the sheep and beef industry is uh, complicated systems complicated by the number of different classes of stock we have, uh, different management systems that we have, different soil types, different topography. No two sheep and beef farms in New Zealand are the same so we have all these complicating factors overriding what the decisions that we make now on top of that you have a whole lot of information coming out to farmers some of it in glossy brochures uh, some of it through agribusiness people some of it through sales people uh, and so there's a massive amount of information that farmers have got to try and digest and try and sort out what's good and what's bad but not only what's good and what's bad but what's good for their system. So one of the things that's that dawned on me over the times is that the basics don't change. So what our fathers and grandfathers did in those basic agriculture principles, they don't change. All we do, all we've done as scientists, is we play around the edges a wee bit. So we might modify a bit of, in plant breeding, we might get a wee bit of better quality, we might get a wee bit of better winter growth or spring growth, but it's really just playing around the edges, and and it's much the same in all the science systems that we have. So what we learned or what I learned at Lincoln many, many, many years ago uh, from the Prof coops and the Langers and the Walkers and these sort of people, those principles are still exactly the same now as they were back then. And what we, we've moved from that sort of management system where we had time and we, we could do those things, we've moved into a sort of an instant society where it's a throwaway society and what we want are instant answers. But we really need to go back to those basic things and get a good handle on those basics and understand them, and then we will understand our systems a bit better. So,
0: do you think um, with the information flow and all these things are out there and those competing sources of information, do you think we, they're complex systems, but do you think we tend to overcomplicate the, the business of managing those systems?
1: We've very much overcomplicated it, or they've overcomplicated it for us, mm-hmm. but we've also overcomplicated it a wee bit ourselves because we've tried to diversify into that and diversify into the next thing. Uh, and I was on a farm uh, a couple of years ago. I think there were 23 different stock classes mm-hmm. on that farm. Now, there's absolutely no way a staff of three or four people can manage that. Uh, we need to make it as simple as we can. And some of the best systems uh, that I have, most profitable systems that I've seen around are people who have gone right back to the, the basic simple system and they may be just a straight breeder. Uh-huh. They may sell all their stock, all their lambs at weaning or they may be a straight finisher. So they've tried to simplify the, their farm system so that they can concentrate and do properly uh, those goals within that farm system that they've done.
0: Uh-huh. All right. So, look, let's um, get down to some more nitty-gritty. I guess you stick to the basics, get it right. What are the basics or the, or the most important basics in your view?
1: So, the basics are understanding that the production system, when you can make money from your ewes or your cows, uh, how to best put that system into place uh-huh. and really just to... I guess it's to concentrate on those few things without getting waylaid into the, the little bits that are going to give you the threes or five percenters. It's, it's getting the 90% right uh, and the other 10% will look after itself, basically. One of the things that we probably do need to change our thought pattern around, particularly in the sheep system, compared to what it was 30, 40 years ago. So when I first went into the sheep system and managed the farm, it was in the skinny sheep days. And Mm -hmm. there won't be a few if you remember that. But we actually got a subsidy for the number of stock we had on on the 30th of June. So we had uh, 45 kilogram ewes producing 90% lambing, 11 and a half, 12 kilogram lambs. And that was the most profitable system. And um, there was even at one stage... uh, Department of Agriculture, uh, recommended that farmers didn't put the ram out to the ewes because there was more money in wool than there was in, in lamb. Yeah. I think those sort of things have changed. But the big thing that has changed from that period of the so we'll call it the skinny sheep day to the modern ewe is the lambing percent. So we worked on a 100%, basically one ewe, one lamb. Mm-hmm and now we've basically got into a system of one ewe, two lands, so we we haven't actually changed our management system enough to accommodate that massive change we've had in the fertility fecundity of our our ewe flock. Uh
0: Yeah, um, it was interesting just talking about where we've come from and, and, you know, I think most people have a bit of an idea of where we've come from, but there is a photo somewhere I think in Beef and Lamb New Zealand headquarters of a, I think it's at least 3,000, maybe 5,000 uh, Romney Weathers back when, um, A, we were paid per head subsidies and wool was um, a much bigger slice of income. It might be about 5,000 Romney Weathers, mixed age weathers these are too, not, not works land, coming in for sharing, which was... Um, quite a sight to see, which we may never see the likes of again, but um, anyway, that's reminiscing. Thinking about this, and, and you know, animals have changed, but one of the key basics you told me you wanted to talk about was understanding animal requirements. I mean, our animals have lifted their lambing percentage, but they're not a different animal. They are still a sheep, just at a higher performance level, so their requirement isn't some magical figure. So it just needs to be adjusted for live weight, body condition, and that level of performance. So. What do we need to get right or what are the things farmers should think about when we're talking about understanding animal requirements, Tom?
1: So one of the things when I work with small groups of farmers, uh, I ask them basically four questions. And from that, the answers to those questions, I can pretty well get an understanding of uh, what's happening in their system. Uh So the first question is, are you happy with your scanning percent? Now, it's interesting, probably 90% of farmers in New Zealand are happy with their scanning percent. Yep. The May, the, there's probably a few farmers even now that their scanning percent is a wee bit high, but would like to bring it back a bit. But as soon as they say, yep, I'm happy with my scanning percent, that means that their summer-autumn management must have been reasonably good. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't be getting the scanning percent they're getting. The second question, are you happy with your land survival? Uh-huh. No, not many people. So that's an area that we need to concentrate on. Are you happy with your land growth rates during lactation? Or the question is, are you happy with your weaning weights? 90% of farmers are not happy with their weaning weights. Uh-huh. And then the fourth question is, are you happy with your post-weaning land growth rates? That's 50-50. <coughs> so in a sheep system, or sheep and beef system, There are only probably four or five times a year that we can actually get numbers. And if you're going to make some decisions uh, in your management system, you need to base them on some factual information. So we can get our scanning percent because someone else has given us those numbers. Uh You've paid someone to scan, so come back with 185%, whatever it is. No one really wants to work out their lamb losses because that number is quite high. But it's actually quite easy to work out. And it's not necessarily a number that you take down to the pub because it, it might be a bit scary. But it's a number that farmers should work out for themselves. How many lambs do I have available through scanning? How many lambs did I sell or keep for replacements? That's my lamb losses. And if uh-huh. it's 18 20%, that's a lot of lambs. But that's roundabout about average. Weaning weights, how many farmers actually can tell me what their average weaning weight is? If you're not happy with your weaning weights, you actually need to have a reasonable understanding. Again, you don't have to weigh all the animals. You don't have you you get a good average, provided you don't weigh the heavy ones or the light ones. Weighing 50 or 60 lambs will give you a good average. So it's not a big time-consuming job. I know that farmers are busy over weaning, but if that's a, a number that you need to be able to make some good information decisions uh, then you need to get it so most farmers will tell me their weaning weight is 28 or 30 kilograms or 32 kilograms average weaning weight and we know from the numbers that beef and lamb have that probably the average weaning weight in New Zealand is probably only 26 mm-hmm. or 27. we're not talking about lifting it a lot to make a massive difference so we need to do that and the key driver in a sheep system is the kilograms the key financial driver is the kilograms of lambs weaned per hectare. So the higher that number is, the more money we're going to make. So we need to put around that lamb survival and the growth rate, lamb growth rate during lactation. That's the two areas I see that we need to really improve our system. Mm-hmm. And in the lamb growth rate, it is all about the Quantity of feed that we have available to the ewes, the multiple scanned ewes, in that pre, in the three weeks pre-lamming, and the three or four weeks post-lamming. So all our management system, when we have high scanning percentages, is to be should be looking at how am I going to supply sufficient feed for my ewes in that six or seven week period, just prior and just after lamming because that's going to have a a big influence on my lamb losses, my ewe losses and my lamb weaning weight.
0: And for those of you that have listened to the first podcast we did with Tom, you talked about the key to that is setting up the spring. So those covers, the amount of feed you're going to have to set stock onto to feed the ewe and then your lambs through that that, that six to seven weeks you talk about there. So this is where you talk about farmers want to improve those figures. But the work to do that begins, you're talking at least six months earlier, that's when people should be making decisions to make sure they achieve that performance in the spring. Yes. Yep. So when it comes to, I mean, understanding animal requirements, which are a big part of that, that six months is over the winter and wanting to feed them well, what what are you encouraging people to look at there? Weighing more regularly, body condition scoring, what's your recommendations there, Tom?
1: So you've probably got to get uh, some sort of a handle on your body weight, but more importantly for your uh, youth flock and your, cow, your beef herd, mm-hmm. uh, the body condition score, because you can have a, a 60 kilogram U body condition score 4 and another 60 kilogram U body condition score 3.5, depending on the frame size of that animal. So we're really looking at that body condition score, uh, it's a pretty simple system to do it. It doesn't cost you any money. It costs you a bit of time, uh, but if it's it's going to be time, the return on the time spent to do that is going to be massive. Yeah.
0: So it's getting out there. Um, we talked about it again for body condition scoring for cattle. It's doing it, you know, looking at them. But for sheep, that's getting getting your hands on them and doing them. And what sort of key times? How often do you think people should be? Run, putting their hand on their ewes and, and getting that condition score, Tom?
1: Well, you probably need, certainly, probably three or four times, so uh-huh. uh, probably three or four weeks after weaning to give the ewes a bit of a chance to recover from lactation. Uh-huh. Uh, probably six weeks before the ram goes out, because there's no use body condition score on the day the ram goes out, because uh, there's nothing you can do about it. But if you body condition score six weeks before the ram goes out, You can take those heavy, high body condition score ewes out and maintain them, the low body condition score, you can put condition on them, and you probably need the body condition score about three or four weeks out from, um, well, it's probably a bit late even then, because what you've got to do is to try and maintain that body condition score on your multiple scanned U's up to lambing. So from scanning to lambing, the tendency is... Because the lambs are, uh, their demand is high in that last three, four weeks of the fetus stage. Uh, And if we're not feeding the ewes enough during that period, uh, then the ewes will lose their body condition, you'd lose body condition score. And the effect of low body condition score at lambing has a massive effect on uh, colostrum production, uh, lactation performance animal you know, lamb survival it's got a massive effect and all that information is, is sitting there uh, you know it's n- not new information it's, mm-hmm. it's in there and available uh through the beef and lamb website
0: and what the key point here i think you know you talked about you weigh 50 or 60 to get those averages to help you work out Pre-wean lamb live weight gain, post-wean lamb live weight gain, those sorts of things. But with body condition scoring, what you're talking about here is putting your hand on every ewe in the flock, so because you want to identify the the big girls, the the heavy girls, the well-conditioned girls, but you particularly want to identify the light girls that you can take out and look after.
1: Yes, it sounds a big job, but if if you're straight off the shears, you may be able to do a visual thing, but. Once they get a little bit of wool on them, you really do have to put your hand on. And uh, as I said in the the first podcast, you don't have to give them a score, two, two and a half, three, whatever. It may be just that you have your own scoring system and it's just high body condition score, good body condition score, light body condition score. It may be that you just put them into three, uh, three criteria.
0: So that's the, you're talking about animal requirements and we talked in the first podcast and certainly on the Beef and Lab, website cited lots of information about once you know weight, body condition score, what you want to do with them, how much they need to be fed and those sorts of things. The other key thing you talk about is is feed budgeting. Um, that's a pretty big subject but and we've talked about it till we're blue in the face for years in sheep and beef farming. What do you think we, what are we getting wrong with feed budgeting? Why aren't we doing it more? Why, how can we, why should people do more of it?
1: I think as soon as you mention feed budget, people think that that's, it's pretty complicated. You've got to do it for the whole farm. I've got a whole lot of hill country on my farm. It's difficult to measure pasture growth. I've got some scrubby areas, what i do with them. I've got all these different stock classes. But you can do the feed budget for all the stock on your farm for a whole year if you want to, or you can do a feed budget for your new hoggets for one day on one paddock or any combination of that. So if you can get it round into your head that a feed budget can be done specifically for what you want it to be done for. And it may be that it's done for, I would suggest that the first one I would do would be to set up for that set stocking date in the spring. So I'm going to do my feed budget in the autumn uh, to set up for a target pasture cover that I've got in the spring and it may be on the 250 hectares that I'm going to um, set stock my multiple scanned ewes on, for instance. Mm-hmm. So it's, it doesn't have to be the whole farm. Uh, once you see the benefits of it, you know, dairy farming is a very simple, dairy farmers have made a very simple farm system because they only have milk and cows on. So as I say to dairy farmers, <clears throat> you don't actually have to have a lot of brains to be a good dairy farmer but a lot of dairy farmers do have a lot of brains but the reason is that they've made a very simple system and dairy farmers are very good at feed budgeting because they know from experience the importance of doing that feed budget what impact they're not doing a feed budget just to get a whole lot of numbers and fancy graphs they're doing the feed budget to actually make money and that's the purpose of it to make money How can I up my system to make that last extra 10% or 15%, whatever it is? So dairy farmers, a lot of them will do a feed budget every every week. Nearly every dairy farmer will do an autumn feed budget to set up for the spring. Mm. Nearly every dairy farmer does that. For a sheep farmer, it is just as important, and the returns are probably more important and greater than they for a dairy farmer, to be able to do that uh, feed budget in the autumn to set up for the spring. So, I think it's a perception thing that uh, feed budgets are for dairy farmers. Uh, feed budgets are very difficult. They are difficult if you're going to do a whole farm for a whole year. But if you can bring it back to a simple, uh, a more simple system, that you're just doing it for a particular area of the farm for a short period of time, uh, then you'll probably find and I think the other thing is that a lot of people think that when we do a feed budget, we're looking at exact numbers. And a computer tool will come out with exact numbers. It'll come out with 243.5 or whatever. But what we're looking at is here around about. So if we're within 5% or 10%, that's going to be much better than actually not having any number at all.
0: Yeah, I was saying it comes back to, you You know, just harking back to to the dairy system. It sort of harks back to what you said about sticking to the basics, what they've done there. You could argue is very clever. They've focused on what makes the money and, and made a very simple and efficient system that you can then manage quite um, precisely. But we don't have that or we don't tend to have that in sheep beef farms. You talked about it getting overcomplicated. But I think that's the key point there is that it doesn't, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the great, as the saying goes. It doesn't have to be absolutely precise in your assessment of feed demand, covers, pasture growth, etc. It's a process, you revisit it, but it's going to be more accurate than, uh, in, than just, um, I guess, looking out the window and hoping. Yes.
1: Yeah. We've got to have some information to be able to base our decisions on. Mm-hmm. And A dairy farmer gets it twice a day. It's easy. they can stay pretty much straight away if something's going wrong. In a sheet and beat system we only have about four or five times a year that we can gather this information, so it's important that we do gather the information that is available to us.
0: So one of the bits of information that you do have to gather, so you know somebody comes and scans or you've got a set of scales which give you a nice precise one, I think one of the ones that can often uh, cause concern for sheep and beef farmers, particularly because there tends to be variation within their farm with hills and flats and easy and easy rolling and steeper stuff, is that assessing pasture cover in particular. So again, uh, what do you recommend the farmers do here? It doesn't have to be the full cut a quadrat weight and that sort of thing to get very precise. It's You're talking something that's good enough or close enough will work.
1: Yep, and there are, there are tools available. There's the sword sticks uh, available, to a rising plate, uh, available to get some reasonable idea. And you know, on, a, on a larger property, mixed hill, flats, rolling country, etc., you've probably got, I don't know, maybe five or six different block areas or similar types of land. So it might be that you've got an area of uh, easy rolling country, another area of a wee bit harder rolling country uh, so much steep high country uh, and an area of easy flats so you have those as blocks so what you're looking at there is you're not going to out and monitor uh, every paddock on each of those different types of land classes it may be that you just have monitor paddocks so again you go back to those same paddocks uh, and the other paddocks that you actually measure uh, so to get your range of uh, pasture covers to be able to put into your feed budget. And
0: I think, again, we've talked about, you know, if it, the simpler it is or the, the easier you can make it on yourself to do it, the more likely it is to get done. And I think one of the key things you've talked about too is that, you know, feed budget shouldn't be something you do and you put on the shelf and forget about it. It's got to be a what we call a living document. You know, you, you want people to revisit it, what, every three or four weeks?
1: Certainly over that uh, autumn period, is it, you don't have to a feed budget in the spring, uh, like once you've finished lambing in September, October, November, because you're probably feeding as much as, much as you can to yeah. them at any rate. Uh, and once you get into September, uh, sorry, into October, late October, November, uh, you're probably going to the, you've got too much feed. So um, the important time to do it is in that autumn period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Depending on where you are in New Zealand, if your summer dry, it may be that December, January, February, March uh, period into April. Uh, in the summer moist environments, it may just be in that February, March, April, May period. So, depending on where you are, you've got to decide when the critical times are. Yeah.
0: So we. We've been talking here about typically quantity, you know, how many animals you've got, what they require per head, measuring how many kilograms of dry matter per hectare on, on your pastures or on your crops, which is a whole different issue. But one of the things, one of the bit of work I know you were heavily involved with was around pasture quality, Tom. So, and that was, you know, the Q Graze program and the Q Graze workshops, and, and some of that's still certainly involved in the, the Feed Smart workshops now. What are you. Encourage. What do you think sheep and beef farmers should be doing in that assessing pasture quality field?
1: So in the, it's it's quite lucky actually because all the work that we did with the predecessor of Beef and Lamb, I think it might have been Wool well, Program, we did the work it was that long ago, but it's still the basics and applicable. Where well, we looked at pasture quality on hill country farms throughout New Zealand, uh, and we were basically we were looking at uh, why animals didn't grow in the autumn. But part of the thing that we looked at was pasture quality. And and in 95% of the cases why animals weren't growing or weren't doing any good in the autumn was pasture quality. I think there were 3% where it was internal parasites and 1% where it was trace elements or something. But uh, the majority of reasons why animals don't grow in that autumn-summer period, sorry, in the late summer-autumn period is pasture quality. And unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do about it. Because we have these diverse systems where we grow far too much feed in, the, in that late spring period. It gets out of control, goes rank, uh, and our temperate grasses lose quality over that summer uh, warm temperatures at any rate. So the pasture quality on our hill country is always going to be less in the November, December, January, February, early March period than it is for the rest of the year. So it may be that we need to set up on some of our easier country, uh, 10, 15, perhaps up to 20% of their land area. Well, we actually try and set it up from mid-spring onwards to try and get it under control uh, so that we can generate some pasture quality over that summer period. If we have a farm where we don't have that area where we can set up for pasture quality over the summer, then it may be that we need, we need to think about changing our system. Why are we trying to finish lambs over that summer period? Perhaps we're better off to be selling store lambs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, there's no disgrace in selling store lambs. If I can get more money for selling store lambs and I can get for taking them through for another three months and selling them as finished lambs, uh, I'll take the store lamb every, option every time.
0: And I guess the other option, you know, so we we can battle away and try and produce these grasses that are great for us in late autumn, winter and spring, Um, but to then have that feed for post-weaning, which is what you talked about, you know, the the, the scanning percentage, the lamb survival, the pre-weaning lamb live weight gain, that's all your autumn work setting up for the spring. The post-weaning live weight gain, which is your fourth question that people tend to get disappointed with, is that uh, then starts to happen, you know, late summer, autumn, when we're trying to manage feed, and you talk about one option there. Or you don't require it by going store I guess the third option that's floating around I'd be interested in your thoughts is having specialist forages and things so we we had pastures and rapes we're now seeing you know herb and clover mixtures plantains and things thrown in Do you, do you think they are a um you know they're very popular are they um, worthwhile yeah so uh,
1: there's two there's two parts there well the first one is and we'll go to the summer so-called annual the crop the the pastures and that sort of thing, <clears throat> it's pretty hard to make money out of a summer crop as a, a one-off crop. Yeah. But if that is part of a pasture renewal program, then the costs are split between the pasture renewal and the cost of establishing a summer crop. So when, we, when I was with, it might have even been DSR, but it was certainly 20-odd years ago, uh, we did a survey of why people were sowing new pastures. Why, why do you sow down? Why are you sowing down new paddock, new pasture? In over 50% of the cases, it was because they had a bare paddock after a winter crop.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, in a lot of cases, they're not necessarily sowing down a, a new pasture to get a new pasture. They're sowing it down because the winter crop was more important than the, the new pasture to get one coming from. But, mm-hmm. So in the summer crop, it may be the same thing. They might have gone through a winter crop. <coughs> they want to go through a, another tidy up, so they go through a summer crop before they go into an autumn new pasture. So economically, it may be a good thing. If you can get two or three years out of a, uh, a herb, red clover uh, pasture, and you've got a reasonably high uh, docking percent, landing percent, then you're going to make money out of that crop. There's no question about it. Because if you're going to be uh, have 150, 160% lambs on the ground, it doesn't matter what you do over that dictation period, you're going to have lambs that are not ready to go to the works at weaning. So if you can finish those lambs off, and there's no question that those crops, those herbs, uh, and the clovers will actually allow you to grow, Lands at a high growth rate uh, over that period. Mm-hmm. We talk about the herbs and the clovers. We should, you know, I should be telling myself off here, but we should be talking about the clovers and the herbs, not the other way around. Because the beauty about those herb crops is that clover grows very well with them, mm-hmm. and it is the clover that's going to drive our animal performance over that summer autumn period.
0: So on that, I mean, that is the issue I mean, in our, what we call our permanent pastures, and although some of them may not be actually that permanent, they just are, it's a long time between renewals. But I mean, uh, we tend to still to this day underplay the importance of clover in those pastures.
1: Yeah, and that's that's probably a part that we, of my generation, <clears throat> have got to answer for, is that, uh, and you know very well, that you're... Uh, a member on the it's the New Zealand Grassland Association and so am I. And I talked at one stage way back, we should actually call it the New Zealand Legume Association. Uh-huh. One of the problems I have we have a grass mentality. So we always talk about how how our grass is growing. Uh, when I talk to a farmer about what his pasture seed mix is, they will always tell me what how much kilograms of This particular ryegrass they're putting in, and almost as a second thought, they will say, Oh, and we put in a wee bit of clover. Hmm. Uh, And I say to them, Let's reverse this and we'll pick our clovers first, and then we'll put out a bit of grass to that because it's the clover that's going to be my best system. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think that's the the case. We often talk about ourselves or there's that saying about we're a grass factory but we it's probably uh, yeah, got it around the wrong way. We're a legume factory first and then the grass will, will follow along nicely. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's that how you get clover in your system, etc. And one of the key ways is, you know, um, sowing down pastures, renewal. Do you think sheep and beef farmers generally, you know, it's not easy in some countries, so let's say, you know, some farms can't do it easily, but for those that can are underdoing the rate of pasture renewal,
1: uh, I think they probably are. the The plant breeders have been very good. We've got some ver- had some very good plant breeders in New Zealand. They have tend to concentrate on quality uh-huh. uh, and quantity. Uh, persistence has not been a big thing, particularly in the ryegrasses. Uh-huh. But uh, so farmers, sheep farmers, need to know that you know most of these plants have been bred for rotational grazing under reasonably high fertility. So if we want to get persistence out of them, then we've got to try and mimic as close as we can those conditions. So. There's no question that uh, any new newly sown perennial pasture, and I don't care whether you sow good seed or bad seed, well I do in the next fact, but if it was the first three or four years life of that pasture is going to be its highest performing. Yeah. It will slowly decline, and and it doesn't really matter what you sow in there. It's a part if you're looking at the the ryegrass components rather than perhaps the cockstits and some of those other species, but they will start declining over after about five years in total production. And that's just a fact of life.
0: So, you know, there's the day-to-day management, year-to-year, season-to-season management, but in your view, is it something, you know, farmers should genuinely be trying to think about renewing more pasture or more often?
1: Particularly on their higher, on their better land. So a lot of a lot of sheep farms will have an area of flat land. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as in an area recently where there were there were mixtures of sheep and beef farms and dairy farms <coughs> in the same environment, and I asked a question, "Is what sort of pro- what percentage of production do you get on your flat paddocks?" compared to the dairy farmer next door? And the answer was about 60, 60 to 70%. Yeah. And I said, so why don't you get the same production, Larry dairy farmer? Sure. What's the difference? Apart from a bit of grazing management, particularly in that spring period, when we need to set stock, why should you not expect to get the same performance or same production from that area of land as the same type of, the same class of land on the dairy farm. So, perhaps our expectations on the better parts of our farm are a wee bit low. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because they are, they are the parts of the farm that will drive our system, yep. drive our profitability. No,
0: that's a good point. I think the sheep and beef farmers tend to drive past and, and yeah, you can certainly pick a dairy farm because of the the quality and the quantity of the feed on there but yeah there are still even on some sheep and beef farms parts of their farm that are should be the equal of it if you manage them manage them well as you say. All right look I've um had you on this call for a fair while because we've recorded two in a row um, as I said we've published the first part last week and um, when you're listening to this one it'll be a week later that we've put it up so what have we missed, Tom? What are other stuff if uh, this is your opportunity after all your lifetime of working with sheep and beef farmers the messages you wanted to get across? We talked about sticking to the basics, what those basics are. We talked about having a good handle on animal requirements and monitoring that, the key things to measure, and doing your planning, particularly your feed budgeting. Is there anything we've missed?
1: No, I, I, we obviously will have missed something, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's, you know, sticking to the basics, keep it simple, mm. uh, try and not complicate our systems. Um, and understand that you know you, you can look over the neighbor's fence and see what he's doing and get some ideas, get some clues, which will help you out that your system is probably just a little bit different to his or hers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you need to, you know modify, listen to people, and as I say to groups of farmers, I'm going to tell you a whole lot of information here. So there's probably only 10 or 15% that will actually may be applicable to your farm so you've got to sift out all that information flow that's coming your way and sift out what, what is applicable to me what can I pick up and put into my system that is going to make a change yeah
0: no, that's a good point there's lots of bright ideas out there but ultimately it's people's homes people's business people's livelihood it's what they want to do and what will work for them is the key so Actually, thinking about that, that reminded me of one last question I did want to ask you. We've talked about the things you've seen, things you've observed, the things you'd recommend to farmers, but taking a step back, that bit of a helicopter view, what do you think the industry as a whole, and this is you know, beef and lamb New Zealand, but the industry as a whole, what are what are things you'd like to see better addressed by the sheep and beef industry as
1: a whole? Well, there's two parts. See, one is the same about what I'd like to see sheep and beef farmers do, and that's more monitoring. They need mm-hmm. to monitor the other one is not really your question, but it, it brought it to mind is that in the la- I have noticed in the last 18 months to two, two and a half years, there's a lot more young people in the sheep and beef industry, uh-huh. which is absolutely great, and a lot of those people are really top people. So I've actually got a lot of faith in the ongoing future of the sheep and beef industry. Because we use and. Probably if you looked at the average age, it's not, not who we want it to be, but there are a lot of very, very good young people coming through in the sheep and beef industry.
0: That's a good point and i would certainly, um, you mentioned it before, for those that are members of Grasslands Association, you certainly see it. I don't feel particularly old, but I do when I go to a Grasslands Association conference and. I should turn that around and think it's a positive. As you say, it's good for the industry. We've got so many young people coming in wanting to be part of the industry. So um, it's good to hear. So, look, Tom, I don't. I think we've covered a fair bit. As you say, we could probably talk all day and never cover everything because I know you're a, you're a wealth of knowledge. But if there's questions you want to ask Tom and pick his brain, I know, Tom, you're still out. Well, obviously not at the moment, but once this is all sorted, you'll be out and about doing workshops and field days and things for uh, Beef and lamb New Zealand again at least. So, um Yep. If, um, I'd certainly encourage you to get along. I know Tom is uh, excellent at yarning over a cup of coffee or a biscuit um, at, at Smoko or afterwards. So he'll be at these things. So we'll wrap it up there. Look, Tom, thanks very much for your time. Um, I know I won't say how long I've been in the industry, not as long as you, but long enough. And I've certainly um, always enjoyed going to your events. There's always something new. And I've learned it and heard a few new things today on the podcast. So thanks very much for your time. And we will see you out there again. Okay, thank you.